Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And I'm Elizabeth Norman, and in this episode we talk about that frosty brew, beer. We'll find out what happened in the 1902 Hartford Brewery Workers' Strike, when production at Hartford's four breweries came to a sudden halt, explore the resurgence of hops growing in the state after more than 100 years, and visit one of Connecticut's newest craft breweries, all in this episode of Grading the Nutmeg. This is Mary Donahue, Assistant Publisher of Connecticut Explored, for Grading the Nutmeg. Today's episode is all about beer, that cold, delicious drink that dates back to at least the 5th millennium BC. Most people think of Hartford as a pretty buttoned-up, white-collar kind of place, the insurance city. But at the start of the 20th century, more than 180 saloons and taverns crowded Hartford streets. There were twice as many bars in the city as there were churches and temperance groups combined. Let's talk to Steve Thornton, retired union organizer, historian, and founder of the Shoe Leather History Project about the Hartford Brewer Strike of 1902. to set the stage for our listeners and tell us what was uh, Hartford's saloon scene like in 1900? Well, this was the, you know, the beginning of a new century and people had moved from the farms to the cities. And in Hartford, there were certain locations where, uh, well, first of all, where poor people lived. And that's where often where the saloons and the taverns were. So on Front Street alone, there were 24 different saloons, just on Front Street, not the neighborhood. And there were 180 saloons and taverns in the city uh, at the time. Like I say, it was more than all the churches and temperance societies put together. There were 180, which is a large number. That didn't even include the hotels where liquor was served. So it was a Hartford had a hard-drinking, hard-working, working class, I would say. Now, I read in the article that uh, beer was a nickel if it was in a union shop and $2 somewhere else. Can you explain that? Certainly. <laughs> the, the bartender's union was, in fact, very uh, strong in those days and, the, and mostly run all by Irish-Americans, uh, the Irish-American bartenders, bartenders. Timothy J. Sullivan was the president, and they wanted... Um, consumable goods to be union, and they wanted construction to be union. And so if you went to a uh, union bar you and you bought union beer, it would cost you five cents. But if you went to any other bar or you went to and by any chance bought non-union beer, they would charge a working man five dollars. And now we don't know exactly how that was collected. I can... I can probably venture a guess, but the principle was that you should stick together with your brothers and sisters in the union. And that solidarity and that 
striving for the eight-hour day and the other things that unions did at the beginning of the 20th century, that was very important, and, and it reached all the way into the taverns and bars. Now, the workers had uh, demands. There were four different breweries in Hartford alone, and that's what you've concentrated on. What were they looking for? Well, the, you mentioned four. There was Hubert Fisher, Aetna Brewing, Ropkins and & Company, and New England Brewing. And they produced virtually all the beer for the city. Um, just like cigars or clothes or food, any consumable goods were made locally and produced locally, sold locally. And the bartenders and the brewers and the other uh, craft uh, industries were just coming out of a very particularly difficult time, the, the whole 19th century. There were 24 recessions and depressions all throughout the 19th century, and that played havoc on people's ability to have job security, income security. And so they were beginning to organize uh, in a very serious way. They were organizing unions. And the the beer makers, the brewers, were looking for an eight-hour day with no reduction in pay. And that would not only allow them to go home to their families in the course of a week, because they work generally six days a week, but it also meant that they only needed one job to bring home a good paycheck. And so the eight-hour day was very big for them. Job security was very big because while sales for beer uh, grew during the summer, it shrank during the winter, but they still needed to bring home a paycheck during the winter. So they wanted some kind of job security standard that the employers they knew could provide for them. It was just a matter of how they could come to some uh, agreement. So they negotiated for about a month in 1902 for a new contract. Um, among all four breweries together, the workers realized that there was, there was strength in numbers. That was the whole concept of unionism then as it is now. And so they demanded that all four um, uh, production facilities uh, sat down together with them so they could hammer out one contract. So they really, they spent a month dealing with the representatives of the different breweries. How did the owners of the breweries respond behind the scenes? Well, they were both uh, getting together on their own demands because they all, as employers, they had certain interests and certain needs and they weren't necessarily um, along the same lines as what the workers needed. And they knew that in case of a strike, they'd have to try to keep production open. So they were both looking for people to replace these brewers, which was not so easy to do because uh, this was a skilled craft by and large. And there were a number of different jobs. Uh, some jobs were replaceable, like the firemen. They, these are the guys who stoked the furnace. Uh, the teamsters, you had to be skilled in driving a team of horses, but it wasn't like the actual craft of making beer, but there were there was a wide range of of um, job titles within the uh, plants, and they thought that 
they probably could fill them and keep the companies running uh, and break the strike that way. So they put out their own common demands, and they uh, also prepared behind the scenes to um, for the eventuality of a strike. Now, the strike ultimately happened, uh, and they actually went out a little bit early. So we went from 400 barrels a week to zero, and that, you say, affected about 75% of all the beer consumed in Hartford. That's a huge amount. What else happened during the strike? Well, you're right. It was a huge amount. The, um, you know, beer and alcohol was and still is a very much a part of people's culture and, and even of their diet. So in Germany, for instance, beer is still considered food, uh, legally classified as food. Um, and what happened was they, um, yeah, they were, yeah, you're right. They were excited uh, to actually jump the gun. And these days it there were laws, so that would be, they were very excited about starting their strike, and they went to every single saloon, bar, tavern in the city that served beer, and they talked to the owners and the bartenders to make sure that they wouldn't serve any of the beer that was produced after the strike had begun. There was some stored up, so that could be used. Um, there was some that was probably imported, a little bit that was imported, but basically 400 barrels a week is a lot of beer, and um, all of a sudden the entire city was shut off. How did this uh, strike really affect the workers? They're not bringing home a paycheck, and how long did it last? That's that's very interesting. The uh, Of course, we know that some strikes, like the Colt firearms strike, which happened in the 80s, 1980s. The Colt firearms strike, for instance, in the 1980s, that was a four-year, four-and-a-half-year strike. But this strike only lasted six days, and I think that had a lot to do with the pressure that the, the local population put on the owners, the employers, but also their solidarity. They, this could have gone one of two ways. All the workers in Hartford who went to the bars after work or on Saturday nights, they could have gotten really angry at the strikers and said, oh, you're denying me my beer. You know, I'm pissed at you. I'm not going to support you. That was one way they could respond. But in fact, they responded in a totally different way. They supported the strikers. And not only did they support the strikers by pledging to drink ginger ale instead of uh, scab beer, as they called it. They also um, became more union conscious, more union aware. So they would look at each other's uh, suit coats or their cigars or their hats to make sure they were union made as well. So there was this really uh, strong... Um, a sort of exciting uh, period of time where they were not only supporting the beer strikers, but they were also, in a sort of a secondary way, they were striving for their own um, security and their own progress. Because these workers, many of them hadn't achieved the eight-hour day either, and their wages were... Um, way too low to, to support a family. Often 
especially back in those times, uh, the beginning of the 20th century, mom, dad, and the kids worked in factories just to bring home one paycheck. And that was, uh, there, were no, no, there was no such thing in, as a living wage except for a few of the highest, most skilled workers um, in the industry. So what were, what were the things that the striking workers were successful in getting from management? Uh, they did win the eight-hour day, which essentially means that they were working probably 60 to 70 hours a week during the uh, most of the year. And they got an eight-hour day, which meant closer to 48 hours a week. Um, that's one very, very important thing. And they did that without a cut in pay which means that their pay rose by a, a good percentage. They also won raises, uh, which were modest, but uh, along with the eight-hour day, added up to something significant. They did come up with a plan to share work during the hard months so that no one would be completely unemployed. That was uh, something that employees usually had to force on the bosses rather than laying them off all, all told with the, the exception of four or five, everybody got to keep some hours a week on, in the toughest times. And I'm sure that was quite a negotiation. And most interestingly, um, they won five minutes off every hour to drink beer. And that was a, <laughs> it sounds startling, and it may not have been the healthiest option, <laughs> but in fact, uh, that was part of their culture. They were German-Americans. It was what they drank. Um, they were also beer makers, so they had to make sure the product was uh, was satisfactory. Um, and probably there were one or two alcoholics. <laughs> but uh, the idea that uh, in their new agreement, five minutes was set aside every hour uh, for uh, a break, and that break was a time that they could drink beer, that was quite – that wasn't actually unusual to Hartford. It was it was fairly common in, in the beer industry. But uh, after a while, both labor and management realized that maybe this wasn't the healthiest habit. And so in some places, they actually um, substituted tokens for glasses of beer so that maybe you could drink the beer after work, or they'd substitute other items that they would get, maybe soft drinks or whatever. So what about the idea now, after the, they, they are successful with the strike, they the management has to hire union employees, right? That's right. And then uh, there was that discussion about fire employees that were fired and how their cases were going to be handled. During these negotiations, then that's why I say that this is um, more than just simply a local story um, of a group of workers in Hartford. These issues became uh, really resonated throughout the the next hundred years in, in our country among the um, manufacturing and, and production um, and service work too. It was not just how much they were paid and how long they would work. But who would be hired and who, if they were, who would be fired? So the workers wanted a say in that. After all, they were working side by side with new employees and they, want, they were the ones who had to train them and they were the ones who had to uh, 
be relied upon in order to make a good product. So they wanted to know who would be. They didn't just want the boss's nephew who was an incompetent. They wanted a skilled worker at their side. Um, so hiring was done through the hiring hall. And the hiring hall was uh, when you joined the union, you'd go to the hiring hall. And when there was a, a job open, you were next on the list, you get it. It took a, a lot of the favoritism out of the system. And also, besides the hiring hall, they wanted to make sure that any terminations or disciplines were fair. And of course, sometimes they were fair and sometimes they were arbitrary. So they didn't want the boss making all the decisions on that and being the last word. Now, of course, employers um, scream at that and they always, they always have. They feel like there's some... Um, power being taken away from them. But in my own experience, when you have a fair set of rules that everybody has to adhere to, and those sets of rules determine whether you're going to continue working or what kind of discipline you have, that makes your workforce much more stable, much happier. Everybody feels that they're in a fair working situation. And that's essentially what the beer makers wanted. So in the end, the if I recall correctly, in the end, the Labor Council, which was the a federation of all the unions in Hartford, would appoint uh, an arbitrator, and that arbitrator would make a final decision if the, the, if the question of somebody's uh, job termination couldn't be settled at, on the factory floor. And so this was this was fairly unusual at the time. It's become more. Um, more common these days, but it was not just about money, although that was important. Their fight in 1902, April, actually uh, 1902, their fight was about um, control on the job. They didn't see themselves as just cogs in a machine. They saw themselves as you know thinking, working, breathing. Uh, human beings who wanted to have a say in what happened to them at work, which is where they spent most of their lives, right? They didn't spend their lives at home or on vacation, they, and they didn't spend their homes retiring to Florida. They worked until they dropped, and they wanted jobs that uh, not only uh, meant something, but jobs that uh, they felt like they were treated with dignity. Do you think that this successful strike in 1902 by the Brewers, did that encourage other groups in the city? Did it encourage other groups in the state? Well, it was uh, unionizing generally was a knockdown, drag out fight in every single industry. So at the same time, around the same period that the uh, beer makers were on strike, um, a young woman. Uh, Worked in who worked in uh, Sage Allen uh, as a tailor, uh, started organizing a union there, and when Mr. Allen found out, fired her. Uh, her co-workers, who were mostly male, uh, objected to that, and he fired them. And his work was sent out to other uh, concerns, like G. Fox, and when those tailors refused to to handle that work, they were all locked out of their jobs. So there was a big garment worker, uh, actually tailor strike 
around that same period that it affected all the department stores of the time, and there were lots of them. So that was a that was a big fight, a fight that that the workers there did not win. It, they had to continue the, a campaign to organize uh, for a number of years. Uh, there were large machinist strikes because there were many many factories in the city. A large number of textile workers who went on strike, cigar makers who went on strike. Um, and so in the first two decades of the 20th century, the labor movement was really growing. And what cut off that growth was, I guess I would say broadly, World War One, the, the after effects of World War One, the Red Scare, where a lot of union activists were sort of drummed out of uh, the labor movement, and the open shop period, where employers... Um, got together on a large scale and decided that they would, under no circumstances, allow unions in their uh, in their uh, facilities. So those three things, up until the 1930s, that slowed down the unionization. For more stories of Hartford's immigrants, idealists, and changemakers, visit Steve Thornton's website at shoeleatherhistoryproject.com. Hop plants produce a flower that adds zesty flavor to beer. As author Don Adeletta explains in her article in our summer issue, Connecticut farmers cultivated hops from colonial times in the 17th century through the end of the 1800s. Now, after a break of more than a century, Connecticut farmers from Sharon to Salem once again grow hops for local commercial use and home brewers. In the wild, hops wind up trees and over bushes, but to maximize yield, colonial farmers planted rows of female hops. A 12 to 16 foot pole was erected near each plant and the young plant, the vine, was trained to climb on it. When the cone-like flowers bloomed in mid-September, the vines were clipped. The flowers must be used quickly or dried over a low fire in a hophouse to prevent mildew. Scientists at the Connecticut Agriculture Experiment Station are taking advantage of $153,000 in state and federal funding to pay for multi-year research into what varieties of hops grow best in Connecticut. Let's take a road trip to the Valley Laboratory of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station in Windsor, Connecticut to hear about hops from hops experts and scientists Dr. James Lamondia and Dr. Katja Meyer. As you drive down Cook Hill Road, on the right you see the Valley Laboratory building built in 1940 and on the left farm fields. It's easy to spot the tall wires that the hops grow on. We're meeting with the experts out in the hops garden to take a close look at the hops, then we'll move inside for the rest of the interview. We're standing outside in a hop yard. We're at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station with the two scientists that are leading the Connecticut uh, really great project to get hops restarted in Connecticut. So tell us a little bit about what we're looking at. So we have here the high trailer system and the low trailer system. And there are five different varieties. 
And we planted 10 more last year. So, so you know the name of all these different varieties. Yes. And when you say high trellis and low trellis, I want our listeners to know the high trellis is a wire system with the vines, which are called vines, B-I-N-E. Uh, and it, they look to be maybe about 18 feet high. How, how high are the low trellises? 12? 10? 10 or 12 feet. 10 or 12 right. feet. So yeah. you've got two different heights yes. going. So what you have here is, is a, a, a plant that was put in four years ago now as a small little transplant. Now it's this large um, crown with underground rhizomes. In the spring, those rhizomes send up little shoots. Uh, we set up a this system with uh, these strings that go from the wires on the top, 20-something feet up, down to uh, uh, we have a wire on the bottom that we hook to. And we have four strings per crown. We train at least three of the vines per string. So they, as we train them, we grab them and, and, and do a wrap around the string. And once, they, once that happens, they then do the rest themselves. And those flowers are the cones that we want to be able to pick used for beer. So if we were to take those cones, they can be anywhere from an inch to sometimes two inches long, an inch wide. Um, if you just slice those open, you'll see these little yellow uh, lupulin glands that have all this really hoppy smell and flavor and aroma. So there's all these oils and, and, and characteristics in those hops that the we use for, for, uh, for so bittering that, and aroma good. beer. That's what gets our flavors going, right? Yes. Absolutely. Now, we're standing out in this farm setting with barns. Uh, the hops are next to, it looks like a shade-grown tobacco yes. plot that is under production. There's any number of other crops that I can see when we're standing out here on the farm. Who does all this work? Scientists. Uh, we have, uh, um, oh gosh, uh, uh, half a dozen scientists here at the Valley Laboratory. We also have people from our main station down in New Haven who come here. Sometimes we have collaborators from Yukon or other places um, so there's uh, oh, in the summertime we probably have 20 people working here and then other people who come here to do research as well so and we've we got 40 or 50 different research plots. We have an awesome farm manager. Mm-hmm. So I see that uh, both hops and shade grown tobacco look like they'd be really labor intensive are they? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes they are. We spend a lot of time out here working on these crops. A lot of weeding, a lot of cultivation. Yeah. Great. And then even just evaluation, going through which ones are yeah. disease resistant, which what are the insects and problems that are happening, how do we manage all these things. So just uh, sometimes we're on our hands and knees pulling weeds, and sometimes we have a clipboard and we're taking data. So that's really the scientific end of it. You're going to be able to recommend to people who want to go into hops cultivation what varieties are going to grow the best in the Connecticut climate, what's going to winter over the best, what's going to be pest resistant, and really produce a healthy crop as well as something that's just going to be fun and flavorful for beer. That's exactly right. I know that the agricultural station has started to take hops seriously. With all the new young breweries that are starting, it seems like a crop that maybe it's time for it to come back around. Even though it's popular in the colonial era, I don't think it's been a much of a cash crop for the last maybe 100 years. Could you tell us a little bit about what your work is doing to figure out how hops can be grown in Connecticut? This initially started when um, craft brewers and growers got together and we had a meeting right here in this room in 2012 thereabouts. Um, 
they were interested in the potential for hops as a local crop. Uh, nobody had been really growing it here and they approached us about trying to set up experiments to see is it feasible, uh, what sort of problems would growers potentially have and, and sort of initiate this, this research and see where it went, um, which we did. Uh, I was really fortunate that uh, uh, Katja, who had worked on hops, and she can tell you a little bit about some of her background here in, in, uh, uh, in Europe, was here and was available to do a, a postdoc. We got some funding through the Connecticut Department of Agriculture, and, uh, and we've been working on a project since then. Katja, I know that you're from Europe. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience with hops? So I'm from Austria, but I did my PhD in Germany with hops. The hops, everybody knows the word hops or thinks about brewery, breweries using hops, but what is the part of the plant that the brewers actually use? It's the female cone, it's the flower. Uh, so it's the flower, so those have to be carefully, you say you're hand-picking yours here at the experimental station and I know um, there's a complicated, expensive machine that will machine harvest them. How does that process work if they're 18 feet in height? So for that, we actually cut the vines. So they're cut at the top, cut at the bottom. The vines are then hung on it, on this combine. There's a machine that, that pulls the vines through, and there are flail fingers that, that sort of rip off the leaves and the female flowers, the, the cones. Um, the, there's air movement through this and, and conveyor belts so that the leaves end up going in one direction and the cones come out in another and the vines are pulled through and out in a third position. So it, it, um, it's similar in, a, in action to combines for grains, but it's designed for these hops. So it really takes a specialized both growing manner and harvesting manner to, to even get these hops ready to go. Uh, then what's the next stage? I know they have to be dried, and then there's something uh, where they're made into pallet, pallets. Yes. Um, so, as you can imagine, these these flower, they're flowers, so they they are they have a very short lifespan unless you do something with them. So we, they have to be dried fairly quickly. They can be used to make uh, fresh hops, um, uh, fresh hop beer, where uh, within 24 hours. They can be put into a, a beer brew, and it makes a really unique kind of a beer. But beyond that, they are dried down so that they are preserved. They don't mold or go bad. Um, then they can be either held that way, usually with refrigeration and vacuum packing or uh, storing them in, in bags with, uh, with the oxygen is replaced with nitrogen. Um, and then at some point, they can be then ground up and pelletized so that there are small little pellets that look a little bit like rabbit food, and those are stored for longer periods of time, and then that can be used in brewing beer. So if you're using those fresh hops, that's called the wet hops, right? That's exactly right. So they're right. really just, they're picked, they've got that really short lifetime that mm -hmm. they can be used, you do your beer right there, or this dry, the dry hops, that it can be dried, made into pellets, and then I read that that's an easy, easier method for brewers to use to go through their machinery is to use the dried pallet-shaped ones. What kinds of um, flavors are brewers telling you that they're interested in? 
all different kinds. As Katja said, we have now 40, 50 different varieties. Each of these is a little different. We are learning through our process that, that the, the hops that are grown, the same varieties that are grown in the Pacific Northwest versus here have different flavors. For example, Cascade is probably one of the most widely used varieties. The ones that are grown locally have a fruitier flavor and they're being used in these uh, New England IPA style beers. Um, so there's all these different characteristics. Um, and there are also special um, varieties for the bitterness and the aroma hops. Mm -hmm. right. So you've got this 45 or 50 varieties and I know you're looking for things that are going to grow well and they're going to be hardy. Are these plants that have to be newly planted every year or is it like a vineyard where you've got grapevines that continue year to year? You planted them once and it's a perennial plant and I think you, you can harvest it 10-15 years but it also depends what is popular now. So. And how many brewers do you think there are now in Connecticut? Seems like I see a new one every. Yes, gosh, the number, month. I don't think that the number changes every day. It's, um, last I last number I saw was in the, there were forty something craft breweries, and there are plans to open probably a, a similar number. How do you think the farmers are going to respond to this? Do you see a big upsurge? Do you see interest in this, or or are they waiting to kind of see what the results of your experiments are? Well, actually. Um, all of the above. Uh, when we, we did some demonstrations and, and we sort of demonstrated that yes, it is a, it's feasible to produce this crop. We were looking at different varieties that are resistant to some of the diseases that drove the crop out, you know, in the 1920s and earlier. Um, people started growing hops. There are now hops growing commercially. There's a new newly formed Connecticut Hop Growers Association, and they are taking this information and moving forward on their own. So um, it, it has started a new industry. Each of these growers is setting up relationships with brewers. So they have their, they're doing their marketing on the side for, you know, each individually and sometimes through the, uh, I guess, through the uh, association as well. So it's really moving forward very quickly. How valuable do you think this crop could become? Oh boy, um, um, that's a good question. I, you know, the, it, it, it's a high-value crop which fits in well with Connecticut agriculture. Uh, there are a lot of people who are interested in locally produced products. Um, uh, this has been the case in other states around us. It's been the case in many places in the world, and, and um, um, th I think I think there's a lot of potential for it. I mean. They, amount per acre could be, oh gosh, I even hate to say how much it might be per acre because it all depends on what, what people are getting for either fresh hops or for their, their dried hops, but um, um, you know, it, it, there is a potential for this and, and it, it is economically viable. Well, I think a lot of this is all coming together. Not only are, are hops being produced and, and new uh, different kinds of beer being produced, but we also have people now making or producing malting houses so that they, they're growing barley and malting the barley so we're going to have all the components for uh, local production of beers and, and I think we're going to have some really unique opportunities.
Young brewers across the country are striking out on their own to create craft breweries that produce distinctive, flavorful brews. We stopped into the Hog River Brewing Company in Hartford to talk to Ben Braddock, owner, founder, and brewer. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Mary. Thanks for having me. Now, I have to tell you that we are so partial to the name of your brewery because our magazine, Connecticut Explored, started out in Greater Hartford and it was called the Hog River Journal. And now we've got statewide, so it's Connecticut Explored. But the minute I saw the Hog River Brewery, I said, this is where we have to go. And I'm so glad we're here today. Ben, I'm looking at this wonderful room that you have for your tasting room, and it's in an old rubber factory in the industrial section of Parkville in Hartford. And you have these 20-foot tall pieces of machinery from the original factory as part of the tasting room. Can you tell me a little bit about those? Sure. Um, actually, this whole section of Parkville has a lot of history in it. And when we were looking for space open our brewery and tap room, that was a major aspect of why we decided to sign a lease here. Um, you know, naming the brewery after the subterranean river in the city of Hartford, the Hog River. And then Another part of that was wanting to educate people on the history of Hartford. Um, there's so much lost history in the city that nobody knows about anymore, and we want to bring it back to the forefront. So part of that is naming the brewery the Hog, Hog River Brewing Company. Another part of that was signing a lease in this former Hartford Rubber Works building, which is also surrounded by other um, historical factory buildings, which were mostly owned by Pope Manufacturing. So um, here in this city block we have... The original power plant that powered all the steam or all the manufacturing buildings. We have the old warehouse that stored all the wheels and tires that were manufactured by Pope slash Hartford Rubber Works. Um, Hartford Rubber Works um, invented the pneumatic tire, so the uh, Pope Manufacturing bought them out and erected this building for wheel and tire production. So, um, like Mary said, we have some of the original manufacturing equipment in here, which we had to totally rehab. Um, they're old cast metal hammer presses. They run about 15 feet down in the ground, which we had to bury, and then we had to degrease them um, and repaint them. So they're, they're definitely a statement piece of our tap room. And then I'm seated at this beautiful handmade table. I see them here in your, in your tasting room. Tell me a little bit about the, the wood here in the tables. Sure. Um, you know, when building at the tap room, we wanted to, to make our tap room feel very warm and comfortable because there's a lot of concrete in here. And believe it or not, when you walk in, it does kind of have a, a warming feel to it. So we kind of dub ourselves Hartford's living room. And in creating that environment, you know, we have a rocking chair in here and soft, warm, reclaimed wood tables. Um, all the wood we source within 20 miles of Hartford. So um, where we're sitting right now, actually, we're in an old freight elevator shaft that was the main elevator shaft for for the whole facility. So we converted it in, uh, into a room that seats about 30 people. How did you decide to come into uh, creating a new brewery mm -hmm. in the 21st century? <laughs> well, it was a long road. Um, I've been brewing commercially um, as my career job for about 10 years now. Um, I worked in insurance for a little while and made the rounds at various insurance companies around the city of Hartford. Um, and after about six, seven years of doing that, I decided that it just wasn't for me. Um, all along, I'd been making beer on my stovetop at home. And one week, I had got put on a new project um, out in Minnesota, and I was going to have to work out there six days a week. And I was had just gotten married, and I decided it wasn't the life for me anymore. And uh, my wife convinced me to actually go to my boss's office the following Monday and give my two weeks' notice. And uh, she was urging me to get into the craft 
brewing industry. And at the time, there's only about six or seven breweries in the entire state. It was a lot different than it is now. And um, I thought she was crazy, but she believed in me, and I did it. I went in, I quit my job, and my boss asked me what I was going to do, and he laughed at me. And um, we went home, and I sold my car and canceled the car insurance and the cable and started riding my bike to a, a local production brewery in Bloomfield, Thomas Hooker Brewing Company. They were just getting off the ground. So um, I volunteered there on the keg cleaner and loading dock for about six months and worked my way up to lead brew over the course of five years there while going um, also to the Siebel Institute of Technology to learn learn the trade. It's a brewing school out in Chicago. Um, after Thomas Hooker Brewing Company, I went out to Willimantic Brewing Company where I worked with David Walner uh, brewing there for um, five years. All along, I was working on the business plan for Hog River Brewing Company. I, when it's all said and done, it took about four years from the first day of laying pen to the business plan to opening our doors in August of 2015, so or 16 rather. So it was a long road. How does the process, beer brewing process here, work at your brewery? With 10 years of experience coming into this, I guess I, I wanted to, to raise enough capital to open a brewery that when people came in, they're like, all right, you know, this, this is a place that... You know, they, they kind of know what they're doing, you know. So we, we spent the money to get um, a really nice uh, a really nice brewing system. It's a nice semi-automated seven-barrel brew house. So we brew about, when it's all said and done, about 225 gallons per batch. I do everything myself. So it, it's still a fairly manual process, but there is a, a touchscreen computer on there where I can hit a few buttons and save some time since this is pretty much a two-man show between my wife and I. But... Um, you know, when, when you come in here and try our beers, we, we don't do any distribution. We sell 100% of our beers out of the tap room, which is also a unique business model right now. So um, I, I have a, a, a passion for brewing German-style beers. So um, right now we have six beers on tap. Four of them are, are German-style beers along with two American IPAs, which are quite popular right now. So we have a rotating draft list. Our, our one house beer that we have on all the time is a Kolsch which is a beer native to the Cologne region of Germany. So that's the one we try to have on at all times, and then everything else rotates. So right now we have a Schwartz beer on, which is another traditional German black lager. Um, we have a, a smoked red ale, which is a take on a German Rauch beer, which is typically 100% smoked ale. Um, this one, the smoked malt styled back a little bit, and you get some bread and caramel out of it as well. So we, we run the gamut. Um, we try to make something for everybody. And um, in the nine months we've been open, we've brewed 52 batches of beer, and um, about half of those are unique recipes that we've brewed once. And, you know, the recipes we've brewed twice, three, four times. So kind of it depends on demand. Now there's a difference between an ale and a lager. Can yeah. you explain that? Sure. Um, ales and lagers, um, it basically comes down to initially fermentation. Um, you know, the, the beers start with the same ingredients, and then... Um, as a brewer, we're not necessarily making beer. We're making wort, um, W-O-R-T. It's a, it's a sweet water solution, which eventually turns into alcohol. So once you brew the wort and put it into the tank, then we pitch our brewer's yeast. The brewer's yeast eats all the sugars that we created during the brewing process. So um, what makes a difference between an ale and the lager is that brewer's yeast. So a lager yeast um, ferments at a cooler temperature. So um, it, the yeast moves a lot slower. It takes longer to eat the sugars. And then... Lager um, is a German term that means to store. So um, lagers are typically aged or cold conditioned in a tank for, you know, up to six weeks. And there's usually a lower ester profile, so you don't get, like, a lot of the fruity aromas and, and flavors. They're, they're cleaner and crisper and easy-drinking beers. 
whereas in ale, they ferment at a warmer temperature, usually between like, you know, 68 and 72, 73 degrees. And that yeast will create more of an ester profile, so you can get um, more of those fruity, floral flavors, stuff like that. So, um, and there's dozens of different types of, of ale yeast, um, not so much for lager yeast, they're, they're more streamlined, but um, here we, we use a few, since we don't distribute, we have the ability to, to play around a little more, we have more flexibility to, to brew different styles of beer. Um, you don't find a lot of lagers out there because they take up a lot of tank time, whereas an ale you can turn over every two, two and a half weeks, a lager, you know, it takes up six weeks of tank time, so it's hard to keep up with production, but... Um, Every brewer is trying to find their niche right now, so there are some breweries opening up that they have a, a predom predominant lager lineup. Um, in Connecticut, the, the lagers are making a little bit of a comeback, especially this summer, um, like Pilsners and so forth. Um, our, our neighbor brewery here in Hartford on, on the other side, Hanging Hills Brewing Company, they have a, a great Pilsner they just came out with, the Hills Pils. Um, and then uh, Jack's Abbey up in Framingham, Mass., they specialize in lagers. It's all they brew. So there's a lot of variety now, which is great. Now, I just discovered that the part of the hops that's used are the blossoms in beer making. Can you explain how hops are used in beer? Sure. So um, beer is brewed with four main ingredients. You have your water, you have your brewer's yeast, you have your hops, and your malted barley. Um, in Germany, back in the 1800s, they had a, a purity law purity law saying you can only brew with those four main ingredients. It was actually against the law to put anything else in your beer. Um, the brewing industry has evolved over time. In Germany, they use that purity law more as like a marketing tool now. Um, some, some of the older brewers still follow it, but um, you know, here the, the hops are very important in beer these days. Um, there's dozens of varieties of hops sourced from all around the world, whether it's New Zealand, Australia, um, you know, Germany, England, all over the place. And um, depending on the style of beer you're making, the hops make a huge difference. Uh, the hops that are popular now are more uh, hops from, like, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. They're hard to get. They're expensive. But um, the hop market is quite innovative, and the, the flavors and aromas they put in, into beer, um, it's like no other time in brewing history. It's pretty amazing. So the issue is that with the demand of the hops, you have to pay a lot. You, you buy them per pound as a commercial brewer, and um, some of these hops can run up to thirty dollars a pound. And you know, in a in the way IPAs are, are brewed here at Hog River, we could use up to thirty pounds of in, of hops in one two hundred twenty barrel batch of, of IPAs. So um, it's great to have those unique flavors and aromas in a beer, but it does affect the overall price of the beer too. So you know, we try to strike a balance. What have you been uh, looking at in terms of hops grown in Connecticut? Yeah, so the we get a lot of people coming in and they're looking to um, get into the brewing industry um, from a raw material standpoint, whether it's planting barley or uh, planting hop fields. Um, so we actually have a hop contract with a local farmer out of Morris, Connecticut. Um, Doug Weber uh, started it up about two, three years ago. Uh, the name of the company is Pioneer Hops of Connecticut, and he leases 20 acres of uh, fields up on South Farms in Morris. And he planted a couple different varieties, uh, Cascade and Chinook. And we were, I think, the second or third brewery to sign a contract with Doug before, it was about a year before we even opened the doors here in Hartford. And my, my thought process on that was, I had never even tried his hops, but my thought process was that, you know, the market's constantly evolving and 
Um, there's going to be more and more breweries opening up. Hops are going to become harder to find. There's not a lot of local ingredients, and, you know, we're a very local brewery. You know, like I mentioned earlier, we don't do any distribution. We rely on customers coming into our tap room to consume our products. And, you know, to, to brew beer with Connecticut-grown hops, you know, we thought would kind of, you know, set us apart a little bit. Um, as it turns out, there's several breweries here in Connecticut now that uses hops. Um, we have one beer called From the Ashes IPA. It's brewed with 100% Connecticut-grown hops. Um, actually, just brewed it last week, and we'll be out in um, early June. So we, we, we don't get enough hops from Doug and Pioneer Hops of Connecticut to brew all of our beers, and the, the price point is a little higher on those hops because he, he produces a smaller volume and you know carefully produces them. The quality is a little higher. So um, while we can't produce every beer with them, we can produce a couple beers with them, and they, they're definitely a unique hop. Um, I don't know that they're exactly Chinook and Cascade hops that we would get from um, other parts of the United States, but they're definitely unique, and I think that's attributed to the, the growing conditions, the soil, and just the way Doug treats his hops while processing them. So they're, they're nice to have here in the brewery. And in that tradition of Hartford brewers, do you see many more breweries opening in the state? Do you feel like you're in a unique position? You're in a unique location? You've got this wonderful historic spot? You've really got the experience? What um, do you see happening in the brewing business? Yeah, it's, inter- it's an interesting time to be a brewer and even a consumer right now. I mean, the consumer has so many options. Um, so in my opinion, it is that with, with, with the consumers having so many different options, not only with Connecticut breweries, but national breweries now distributing in Connecticut. Um, I mean, you really have to be on your game. If you're not making a good pint of beer, then it doesn't give the consumer a reason to come back and try something again. So, you know, 10 years ago, you can make a mediocre beer, but there's only seven or eight breweries in the state. So, um, but now it's you have, you have to really be on your game and, you know, have your hand on the pulse of, of, the, of the consumer and what, what they're looking to, what products they want to consume. You know, in terms of breweries opening up, it seems like there's a new brewery opening up every every month. Um, you know, by I lost track of how many are actually in the state of Connecticut right now, but by the end of 2017, I probably 70 breweries just here in Connecticut alone. If you go up into Mass, you know, probably 150 plus. Um, so there's there's a heavy concentration of breweries in the Northeast in general. So far, the breweries that are making good beer, I think they're they're all doing okay. Um, you know, the competition is one of the reasons we decided to change our business model away from distribution to sell our beer just here in the tap room. Um, you know, as a brewer that only brews 220 gallons at a time, if we went out and got a draft line at a local restaurant that only has 12 draft lines, we can't make enough beer to keep that draft line. So the second our keg runs out, the next brewer is going to get it, and then we might not get that draft line back. And now with the macro brewers like InBev buying up all the small craft brewers too, you might go into a pizza joint that has 12 draft lines, and probably six of those are owned by InBev or, you know, Constellation, one of these brands, and they're not branded that way, so you don't even know you're drinking those beers. So it's extremely hard for a small craft brewer like Cog River to, to get one of those draft lines. So we decided to not hire sales staff, not buy delivery vehicles, um, and just keep our beer in-house. Um, it probably is going to take us longer to get the Hog River brand to the masses. But when people come in here, they enjoy the space, they enjoy the beer, they enjoy the atmosphere, they enjoy the food trucks that we bring in. And, you know, if we can get people's butts in the chairs, they'll hang out here for a couple hours and make an afternoon out of it. 
So Ben, in closing, could you just tell me about what a person would experience when they come to your brewery? Yeah, so um, as we touched on earlier in the, in the interview, um, it's definitely a unique space. Um, we're in an old industrial space. You walk in, there's a lot of concrete, a lot of soft wood. Um, you know, the, the laborers we hired to, to build the tables and the bars, you know, they, they did a wonderful job. Um, everything here was built by families and family and friends. Um, it's a warm, inviting environment. We're family-friendly. Um, our website has all of our events, our beer list on it, hogriverbrewing.com. Every, everything's on there. So it's, it's quite a unique experience, and um, we hope you come in and drink some of our German beers, American beers, and beers brewed with, with local ingredients. Thanks, Ben. I Thank think you. it's time for a beer. <laughs> Read these and other stories about food and agriculture in the summer 2017 issue of Connecticut Explored. The history of oystering, pizza, beer, and ice cream. If you like to eat, you'll love this issue. Connecticut Explored, celebrating its 15th anniversary this fall, is available by subscription or single issue at ctexplored.org. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Steve Thornton from the Shoe Leather History Project, Dr. James Lamondi and Dr. Katya Moore from the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, and Ben Braddock, owner and founder of the Hog River Brewery. The music for this episode is Breaking the Bad by Connecticut artists Clockwise and Angela Luna, available now on iTunes. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue and Patrick O'Sullivan. Thanks for becoming part of the Grading the Nutmeg family. Please write a review on iTunes and stay with us for more authentic and revealing stories about Connecticut history.